0: Have you ever wondered how a company is able to offer unlimited time off or be a pet-friendly office? Curious how HR leaders manage the well-being of remote or essential workforces? If so, you've come to the right place. Hi, I'm Andrea Heron, Head of People for WebMD Health Services, and I'd like to welcome you to the HR Scoop. On this podcast, I talk with other HR leaders to explore the world of unique employee benefits and about the challenges of managing unique workforces. Because well-being isn't a one-size-fits-all approach. On this episode of the HR Scoop, I'm pleased to welcome Kevin Campbell, an executive coach and EX scientist at Qualtrics. We connected on our mutual background of organizational psychology, dive into people analytics, explore why HR needs to do more storytelling, and you'll learn why happy employees make a better-tasting burrito. I hope everyone enjoys this conversation as much as I did. Welcome back to another episode of the HR Scoop. Today's guest is Kevin Campbell, an employee experience scientist at Qualtrics and an executive strengths and leadership coach. Welcome, Kevin. We are so excited for you to be here.
1: Excited to be here as well.
0: Yeah. As I mentioned, just in that very brief intro, uh, your work is so vast and really spans kind of the entire employee experience from data to coaching and I can't wait to talk about all of that. Um, so really looking forward to it. But I know, I guess just to get started, there really are so many people craving a change right now. Mm-hmm. And it is showing up all over the place in not only people resigning, but just pure career moves. You know, just trying something completely different versus doing the same thing in a different company. So are you seeing an uptick in people seeking coaching. And if so, you know, are there any main considerations or factors uh, people are looking for in a career change?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. There is an uptick. The uptick has has been steady for quite a while, even before the pandemic. Uh, there's some interesting research from Gallup that shows that 90% of people who wanted to make a career change had to change companies in order to do so. So someone who's in sales, who wants to go into marketing, someone who's an HR information systems person who would actually prefer to be an HR business partner. Most organizations don't allow for those internal changes, so they actually have to leave that organization and go somewhere else. And that data is from 2016, 2017. So to think about how much that shifted now, given everything that's happened, you know the pandemic shook a lot of things up, and it's made a lot of people reevaluate what they want out of life and what they want out of their career. So, a couple of the things that I find people considering, whether they articulate it or not, the framework that I like to use for it is applying TLC to your career. And I don't mean tender love and care, <laughs> uh, although that's nice as well. I mean talent, love, and commerce. So, what are you good at? Or an even better question. What do you have the potential to be the best in the world at? What do you love? Or at least what do you not mind doing on a regular basis? And commerce, is there actually a market for the kind of thing that you want to do? And it's important to have all three, because as you could imagine, if you're really good at it and you love it, but there's no market for it, it's a great hobby. And if there's a market for it and you love it, but you're not any good at it. then that's kind of a recipe for failure. And then if you're really good at it and you can make a lot of money at it, but you don't love it, then you might be an investment banker or a lawyer. And a lot of my coaching clients are investment bankers and lawyers.
0: I see. That is so interesting because it's true, right? Like a lot of businesses don't take a chance on their own staff to try something new. It's kind of like, no, you came in as whatever job or job path, even not even a specific title, but a certain department or skill. And we're not willing to let you expand. We'd rather you leave, which is the message. I mean, I don't think anyone overtly is saying that, but, you know, we do see it sometimes with rotating internships, but Mm. then the majority of companies don't apply that same opportunity uh, to their current staff. I will say one exception I have seen is with sometimes a leave of absence. If Mm. there's a two or three month period of time that someone's going to be out, that can be a really great stretch opportunity for someone who's interested in getting their foot in the door. Um, but this is a really good point. Why don't we do that?
1: You know, I think because the at the at at a higher level within the organization, that makes sense. If you're in the C-suite and you're thinking about it from an overall business perspective, if you have someone with a lot of talent and you see a lot of potential within that person, of course it makes sense to say why not retain this person if even if we're not going to retain them for this particular team but at a team level not to say that people are necessarily so self-interested that they don't think about the overall organizational health but as humans we can tend to be kind of myopic in our focus and we might not be aware or incentivized to think about that person's overall trajectory within the organization you could even see it in talent acquisition right if You know, I'm a a recovering headhunter and recruiter. Uh, So before I went to graduate school and got involved in organizational psychology, I was a recruiter and a headhunter. And, you know, at Google, they were really forward thinking to say, "If if you had someone that wasn't a good fit for, I worked at Google, if you had someone who wasn't a good fit for the particular role that you were looking for, but they were a good fit somewhere else, that actually counted toward your overall performance metrics. But that's not true for every organization right? The, most organizations, recruiters, headhunters, talent acquisition people, they have a wreck and they're trying to fill that wreck. And they're looking at whether or not that person's a good fit for the wreck, but they're not thinking about those bronze and silver medalists who maybe didn't make the exact fit for that particular job that you were hiring for, but would be great for the wreck that the the recruiter sitting next to you or Maybe not sitting next to you these days, but working next to you in in a virtual sense might be working on. So being able to give people those opportunities is um, is a huge arbitrage opportunity for organizations that are willing to make those those simple changes.
0: It's a really smart approach, especially right now, as there is, you know, limited talent for all of the roles that everyone is trying to fill. It seems like it would be, in our best interest to do that, to keep your internal folks and grow them. But even to move people around within recs, assuming those people are still interested, of course, in those positions, it's a two-way street. Um, But again, with the rec loads and just how busy everyone is, I see where that kind of of outside-of-the-box thinking might go to the wayside a little bit. And Mm -hmm. so in those cases, then these individuals might be seeking outside employment to stretch those skills and to learn something different. Or, you know, there's a company down the street or down the virtual street that is willing to give them a chance to try something completely different.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I worked with a a client, a cybersecurity firm in the Bay Area, and on their engagement survey, they found that career opportunities or the sense of having opportunities for their career was the biggest driver of engagement for some of their key talent and they wanted to figure out, okay, well, what, what can we do? How can we act on that? And when you looked at their data, what you saw was this U shaped pattern of people that were there for a year, a couple years, they, they had really high hopes for their career with this organization. And then at about two to four years, it would drop. And then five years moving forward, you would see it start to rise again. And you see this kind of U-shaped pattern in a lot of organizations. And the theory behind that is there's usually this honeymoon period when people join. But what we looked at is we found that when someone got promoted, if they got promoted at that one or two year mark, that honeymoon period started all over again. But that's not a solution because you can't just go around passing out promotions to everybody. So then what we looked at was people that didn't get promoted but they changed jobs within the same level. And for those people, they were actually higher in terms of their sense of career opportunities than the people that had been promoted. And they were higher than people that had had the honeymoon period. So there's a a, a huge business case for retention around that stuff too.
0: Yeah, it's personal growth and development aside from just, I mean, being promoted and recognized for those contributions and higher level work is very rewarding, of course. But I think people are realizing they do want growth and they do want to continue to learn. And we're seeing that with all generations, but you know, especially with some of the younger generations wanting to really grow and learn and continue on. So kind of sticking with the idea of these you know, coaching and interpersonal skills and anything that we might have called a soft skill, which I would argue is not soft at all Um, but you know HR professionals aren't really taught in a formal way how to master those Mm. and they are critical competencies for HR folks but we also have to train other people to use those so I'm curious how you think those interpersonal skills coaching skills you know how do you think that might impact kind of this people profession or even broader company culture
1: I think it's one of the most important meta skills you could possibly have because it's a skill that unlocks so many other things. And what I mean by that is that it's one thing to know how to do something. It's another thing to teach others how to do the thing that you know. And coaching isn't the same as instructing or consulting but you're enabling other people to come up with their own answers and seek out their own solutions. And HR is already, and you know this better than anybody, spread so thin. So so many of the things that have traditionally been delegated to human resources are almost better when human resources acts as a facilitator of the conversation or the process and enables line managers, not for everything, obviously, (laughs) some things you don't want to entrust to line managers, but I think, you know, employee engagement is an example, right? Uh, How many managers delegate the full task of understanding the feedback and acting on the feedback back to their HRBPs when engagement isn't a survey? It isn't that point in time of how that person feels. It's how those people feel day in and day out. And that's going to be dictated by their manager and their immediate team. So yeah, so the, the, the very fundamental foundational skills around deep listening and asking powerful questions are ones that everybody could really benefit from, but especially those of us in the helping professions, especially those of us who are, who are our primary, um, a mandate is to, to work with people and empower others.
0: You know what I love about that, the deep listening and the asking of, you know, deep and critical questions, that's just a good human skill to have. Like even in your everyday life, it's, it's helpful at work definitely, but also just as a person in a relationship with your family or significant others or friends, you know, if you can actually help people feel heard and ask good, curious, interesting questions, you are going to deepen every relationship that you have.
1: Totally, 100%.
0: But those are not easy things to do. That's the kicker. <laughs> if it was, then everyone would be good at it. Yeah. You know, it takes patience and sitting with that uncomfortable silence sometimes. Okay. So I know we both have a love for organizational psychology. And so I want to turn the conversation a little bit and talk about, you know, data and storytelling and how to really distill it down. So, you know, with so much information at our disposal, I think it's easy to get overwhelmed and fall victim to the dreaded analysis paralysis. So when we're we're taking data and we're taking these deep conversations and we're taking the dashboards and you know all the information from all the digital and analog tools you know how how can we use it how can we tell meaningful stories that make a difference versus just piecemealing out data point by data point
1: great question and i think this is where coaching and people analytics come together in a surprising way that most people might not see on the surface. With data and with digital streams of data coming in constantly and channels for listening that are both solicited and unsolicited and structured and unstructured, all of the answers we could ever want are available. The real skill of the future and the present is being able to ask really good questions. So in order to make good sense of our data and to know what data to even collect or pay attention to, or to look through, it's really good to start with a good question. What, what is it that we're really concerned with? What are our, what's our history and our aspirations as an organization? And what is the, what is the persona of our, our audience, right? Talk about storytelling. There's a a format to great stories, you know, the, the hero's journey. Once upon a time, there was a hero who lived and everything was right in the world, but then there was some sort of disruption. And as a result of that disruption, they grew in some way and they discovered something that they hadn't known before. And then as a result of that discovery, they went on a different path. And that discovery piece is where the data can come in. And as storytellers, we have to ask ourselves, Who's our audience? Because our audience is really the main character. What are their goals and aspirations? What are they after in this world? What are the challenges that are getting in the ways of those aspirations? Getting in the way, the ways, getting in the way of those aspirations. And how can data help give them guidance and insight into where they wanna move next? And I think when we put it in those simple terms, it becomes a lot easier to seek out the specific thing that we're looking for, right? In, in science and in, in social science, they, they call it having an, an a priori hypothesis. But I think in practical terms, it's just about knowing what questions you want to have answered and then being really intentional about looking for things that help you answer those questions.
0: Yeah, I really like that because, you know, I think we spend a lot of time, sometimes not enough time, coming up with survey questions when we're trying to get data from our staff. And I I actually authored a blog not too long ago on this very topic. You have to start with what do you actually want to know? And then do your questions answer that? Are they going to give you the information that will help you respond or have an action or even know what's going on based on the way it's phrased the wording you're using i mean all of that is so important and then you can use the data as you're saying to tell the arc of whatever story or whatever outcome it is that you're trying to express and then of course you still have the data for those you know leaders or people that really want to know the backup but storytelling i think is so undervalued currently and i agree it is going to be such a skill that will differentiate the great employees and the great HR folks or whoever, you know, is leading from the average ones.
1: Totally. Yeah. And I mean, you know, that's, that's a big part of why so much feedback that gets solicited doesn't necessarily get acted on is because there isn't that emotional component data informs, but stories compel.
0: Absolutely. I mean, humans have survived on storytelling for all time. You know, the our ancestors weren't pulling out PowerPoints and Excel <laughs> spreadsheets. They were telling stories that live for generations and generations. And that still matters now. So if you can work on your storytelling skills, I think it would um, help whatever you're trying to influence or change within your organization. But, you know, as you're talking, I'm feeling this sense that there is a new emergence. It feels like something is growing at this intersection of data and people. And, you know, even your role as an employee experience scientist or people scientist is probably something a lot of people haven't even heard of. So mm. I would love to have you explain to all of us kind of what that looks like.
1: Yeah. EX scientist is sort of a term that's particular to Qualtrics, but. It's usually more like a people scientist, like a Humu, Laszlo box company um, has people, scientists, culture, Amp. a lot of firms in this tech people space will often have folks with a, a background like mine and call them people scientists. And it's sort of an emerging role. And I love Venn diagrams. So I always like to think about things in terms of a Venn diagram. And I think people science and people scientists sit at the intersection of organizational psychology, people analytics slash data science and practitioner slash consulting. So it's not just about having that domain expertise in organizational psychology, but it's about being able to apply that to the real world and having just enough analytics chops to be able to explain it to to mere mortals, <laughs> and and do so in a compelling way, and and not necessarily be an analyst, but be someone who's facile enough with analytics to be able to use it and work with data analysts to make decisions and help orchestrate that that storytelling.
0: Yeah, that's what I. It's what it sounds like. Wow, like the ultimate HR data storytelling genre of a new role. So. I think this is coming. So if this sparks anyone's interest, you know, I think there is work to be done there. And the better we can start using data to be more able to, to come across a compelling story, the richer and the more holistic culture and well-being and, you know, all the things that we strive to be and we'll be a little bit more influential. So we had, you know, briefly talked before about, you know, this employee listening and deep engagement. What in your opinion, is it is the solicitation to action gap? And how do the, the stats kind of compare with gathering feedback and how employees actually feel about it?
1: So around 90%, give or take a, a few percentage points of organizations have some sort of employee listening strategy, whether that be lifecycle surveys like onboarding or exit, or whether that be an employee engagement survey, whether that's done once a year or on a more regular basis, there's some sort of mechanism for collecting feedback and listening and understanding employees and their sentiment. But only 7% of employees feel that their organization is very good at acting on their feedback. So there's a huge gap between people being asked for their opinion And that opinion actually manifesting in some sort of meaningful change, or at least it feeling like there's some sort of meaningful change happening.
0: It's a really small percentage, and yet I'm both surprised and not surprised. (laughs) I think I've seen surveys and results and action happen to varying degrees, you know, across experiences and companies um, with the best of intentions, you know, to do the survey. And then the follow through is so hit or miss. And I think we've, we all know if you ask people enough times and don't do anything about it, you stop getting the feedback. Mm -hmm. So this goes back to know what you're after,
1: are your questions (laughs) going to answer it?
0: And then are you going to follow through with it? Because if, if not all of those three, three things are true, you shouldn't do it. In my opinion, would you agree?
1: Yeah. Don't, don't ask questions that you're not inclined to act on. And one one interesting technique is to create mock reports of the survey questions that you have and present them back to leaders and see how they react and ask them <laughs> what they would do as a result of that. And that can really pressure test some of those those reactions to see what people might do with the results.
0: Interesting. Interesting. And... Make sure you have some accountability built in. I mean, that's another strategy that I've seen work. Is maybe it's maybe you could write it in a goal for the annual goals for managers. If you know you're going to do a survey, but also having some accountability or follow through or committing to results in a town hall or it come all company stand up because people will hold you to that, and then it you know gives a little bit more incentive to actually follow through.
1: Totally, and you know I think a lot of it also has to do with. Uh the loop of acting on feedback. There's the outer loop, which is more organization-wide. And that tends to take more time, you know, maybe a, a few months at the least, but oftentimes six months or a year or more. But there's that inner loop with a manager and their team acting on her feedback together that could happen in a matter of days or weeks. Or there's that that procedural loop or a closed loop where On an onboarding survey somebody doesn't have their laptop or have access to some system that they need there's a ticket that automatically goes to IT so that that can be addressed right away so you know I think a lot of times the focus tends to be on that the big what are we as an organization going to do to to act on this and that's absolutely warranted and necessary but that takes a long time so how can you? Manage and, and think about the, the, the smaller loops that don't have as much lift and you can do much more easily, right? If, if recognition is an area of concern or opportunity on your engagement survey, implementing a company-wide recognition software is going to take a while, but it takes virtually no time for a manager to write a handwritten note to someone to tell them how good of a job they've done. And in many ways, that's even more impactful than what you can do with a, a company-wide survey s- or recognition system.
0: So true. Like most everything else related to humans, we are just an onion with layer after layer after layer. <laughs> okay, so I think this has been really interesting from the employee experience perspective and great insight. Do you think there's a connection if we push it out a bit further and talk about the employee experience and how it relates to the customer experience?
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think we all intuitively know that happy employees create happy customers, but I think uh, a missing piece of that is knowing what elements specifically within the employee experience have the biggest impact on the customer experience. And sometimes the things that that we found in in looking at the two data points have been really, really eye-opening and sometimes counterintuitive. Now, when it comes to any kind of data, a lot of times and in most instances, it's correlational. So you have to take it with a big grain of salt, but I still think there's insights that are available there. Right. Uh, If you see as a just an outrageous example that ice cream sales go up when sunscreen sales go up, you know, it's not the (laughs) sunscreen that's driving the sale of the ice cream. Right. But I think we're all smart enough to know, okay, it's probably because it's a sunny, warm day. Right. So, you know, a, a large restaurant chain, quick service restaurant chain. We did some analysis for them and we were looking at their different store locations. And we found that for store locations where the frontline team members had more teamwork and collaboration, the customers said that the food tasted better. And I, at first, I was kind of skeptical. I was like, oh, that's probably just a spurious correlation, probably doesn't mean anything. But when we presented that finding back to the executives, they said, no, that makes perfect sense because. Our food is a, is assembled on an assembly line, you know. Somebody puts the beans in the burrito and then the machaca and then the 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 you know, the lettuce and the guacamole and the more there's collaboration and teamwork on that assembly line, the the better the burrito is going to taste because every bite's going to have just a little bit of each ingredient. So, you know, there's there's little things like that that you can start to gain insight around when you connect the two pieces that will allow you to say of all the things that we measure related to employee experience, what's going to give us the best return on improving our culture as it relates to not just improving the employee experience, but having those knock-on effects of making sure that our customers have an engaging experience as well.
0: That's so interesting. And it does make sense. And I I agree. We intuitively know that to be the case, but I think it would be worth exploring with your employee group and you know, your leadership team and your customers? Are you collecting customer feedback if that applies to your organization? You know, And what might those correlations be? And maybe a survey? I don't know. You have to find out what the questions are. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Well, before we let you go, um, I did want to wrap it up with our final question that I do love to ask. And that would be if you have anything Interesting that you'd like to share with us that most people don't know about you.
1: Most people don't know that I was almost kicked out of Machu Picchu uh, because uh after hiking the Inca Trail for several days. If you've ever been to Machu Picchu, when you enter, there's a, a big sign that says no causing a commotion, no clapping, no yelling. And I had decided that the woman I was dating and had hiked through the Andes with for three days was the woman I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. So I got down on one knee on top of Machu Picchu and I proposed to her. And I didn't realize that because of that, virtually everybody that was visiting Machu Picchu that day would stop what they were doing, look at us and start clapping and cheering.
0: (laughs) Honest mistake. (laughs) So
1: so that's something most folks probably don't know about me.
0: Oh, that's very sweet. And what did she say?
1: She said yes. Okay, don't leave
0: us hanging. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that is lovely. And I'm glad you didn't get kicked out. But if you did, it probably still would have been for a good reason.
1: <laughs> totally worth it. Would have been totally worth it.
0: With all the respect. Yes, with all the respect. Great. Well, thank you again. This was really interesting insight. I hope everyone takes a minute to think about their storytelling and how um, that might be able to improve their communication and those deep listening skills. And maybe we should all strive to practice some of those um, deep listening and good curious question asking. So thanks again so much. And we'll see all y'all next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to the HR Scoop podcast. Please take a moment to rate and subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or directly at webmdhealthservices.com slash podcasts.